In just a minute, we'll be in Philippians chapter 3. If you want to take your Bibles to Philippians 3. This is very encouraging to be with you and to see you. Um, I have to say, I'm glad I'm not in the basement with you all. Though. That's, I mean, I like the basement, but <laughs> I think I'd be more nervy about it if we were in the basement. Um, so we're going to talk about heaven and going home for eight lessons. I've got three, and then Ryan and Luke have a couple of lessons they're going to bring. So for the next, I guess, uh, however many hours it is that we spend together, we're just going to be thinking about heaven and going home. And I'll tell you up front that some of that in my mind as I think about the idea of going home is a difficult thing for me to think about. Uh, maybe maybe you're like this. Maybe you grew up in a home that when you left it, you didn't want to go back. Like it wasn't the place of comfort that it should have been. And so like your concept of going home is a is elusive, you know. And and we're gonna be talking about heaven which I've never seen. Uh, we have descriptions for us. We have people that have visions of it, and we have a Savior who came from it. But the idea of getting excited about home is not the same for everybody, is it? Um, <clears throat> have any of you seen that photo that came out uh, sometime this week with all of those people fleeing Afghanistan on the jets? There's that big jet, military jet, and they took a picture of all the people sitting in the in that place. Uh, we, you might have seen images of people grabbing onto the jets, trying to fly. That's their home. That's their home. Do you think they'll ever go back? This idea of someday we're going to go home. <clears throat> And everything's going to be better. I'm just telling you, this is a hard thing for me to wrap my head around. It is. <clears throat> but I believe scripture is meant to help us get a different way of looking at that. So that no matter where you came from, or what your story is, or what your situation is, home and the idea that we're someday going to be with our father is the most exciting thing that we could ever talk about. And so I'm excited to talk about it. I apologize for being emotional. Um, there's probably a million reasons for that. But uh, this is a stirring topic, and I didn't know that last song, but whoever led it, I, I've not met the man who was leading singing, but I blame you. Making songs like that. I mean, if, if you just paid attention, I had to pay attention because I'd never heard it before. I mean, everything about that song was when every dream is broken, when everything goes wrong, when everything's a mess, heaven shines through, and then we can keep going. And so Paul wrote a letter in Philippians when he was in a jail cell, and from all earthly perspectives, nothing looked hopeful. There's all kinds of great things that he said, but I want you to focus here on chapter 3, verse 17. <clears throat> he said, Brethren, join in following my example, 
and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. <clears throat> that phrase in verse uh, 20, we're going to look at in just a minute, for our citizenship is in heaven, is what actually fuels what he says back in verse 17, when he says, hey, join in following my example. Because Paul was living a life where he knew and he understood where his home was. And because he understood that, he was going to act very different than people who thought their home was here. And so he says, many, many people set their mind on earthly things, and their gods, their stomach, and you can follow their example. Or you can learn from somebody who knows that heaven is there, believes that he's a citizen of it, and you can conduct yourselves accordingly. Uh, let me go back to the Afghanistan picture in your head. All those people on the plane. You suppose some of them might have been believers in Jesus that were on the plane? Maybe. Maybe. Let me tell you what I, I think probably is going on over there, though. Is that there are genuinely people in Afghanistan who believe in the Lord. Who are people who understand they're citizens of heaven. And I bet you, we're never going to hear their stories. They are handling this very different than all of the images you see on TV. I'm not saying they aren't nervous. I'm not saying they're not sure of what's coming. But I just have this sense that the people that know where home is, and they've been living in that place for a long time that doesn't feel like home to Christians, that they are handling this differently than everybody else. Do you agree? And I think you know that because you've met people like that. It's not everybody you go to church with. It's only some who, when the real trials of life hit, there's just something different about them. Uh, before we get into my lesson, which is really simple, I've got four points in this first lesson. Understanding that we are citizens of heaven changes four things, at least I think scripturally. It changes our relationship with pain. It changes our relationship with what we value. It changes our relationship with anxiety and worry. And it changes our relationship with people. For those of you taking notes, that's pain, value, anxiety, and people, or relationships. I'll have more to say about that. But I want you to look at that word citizenship in verse 20 again. If you have the New American Standard, you might have a footnote. And in the footnote, it will tell you that sometimes that word can be translated commonwealth. That's an old word. But I want to tell you that I like the word commonwealth. It sounds kind of British to me. Um, but I like the, the imagery of the word commonwealth. I don't know if you ever use that word. But if you take the two ideas of the two words, common and wealth, it means that when you are a citizen of a group of people, you belong to a group, that there's something that you all share, that even if you 
aren't rich, like you don't have a lot of money in your pocket, there's a wealth that you have because you belong to the common group. Um, I just had somebody comment on this last night. Uh, there's a family that just moved to Minnesota. They showed up at the park last night. We have like sports nights on Thursday nights, whoever wants to come. And they showed up and they were admiring the park that we were at. And they said, man, Minnesota has like the greatest parks. And I said, yes, because we have the highest taxes. <laughs> and they do like good things with those taxes. But that's an, that's an example of commonwealth. Like everybody in that area, no matter what they have, they can go share in the benefits of belonging to a group. And depending on what's, what place or what group you're a citizen of, that common wealth is actually richer or less rich. Uh, let me see if I can give you an example of this. Have any of you ever traveled out of the country, like especially to a country that was more depressed or wasn't as rich? Anybody ever done that before? And when you went there, if you were nervous about that at all, like if it was a dangerous place, was there something that reassured you while you were there that you were a citizen of the United States of America? Think about it. Because you were an American, because you had a passport, because somewhere in that place there probably was an embassy, if you got into any kind of trouble or if somebody tried to do whatever, you had like the backing of the United States of America. You know what I'm talking about? I remember when I was in India, I kept thinking about that. And maybe that's why nobody likes us, because when we go to their countries, we act like we're bulletproof. Uh, anything can go our way because we're Americans. Now, part of the idea of that, though, is we understand that there is a wealth that's common to the citizens of a certain place. Now, there's some things that I find interesting about that word, where we get our English word politics, by the way, all the times you see citizen or commonwealth, it's where we would get our English idea of politics. Uh, go back to chapter 1 in Philippians, look at verse 27. Here's another form of this word here. 127 says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, does anybody have the Christian Standard Bible? Is anybody reading out of that today? Pullman Christian Standard Bible? Alright, Indiana people. That's caught on some places, not here yet, right? Alright, so nobody has the Holman Christian Standard or the Christian Standard Bible. So nobody's version is very helpful for understanding which word it is that is citizenship. Does anybody know which phrase in verse 27 has to do with citizenship? Anybody want to guess? Look at the first part of verse 27. Conduct yourself. That's the word. Conduct yourself. And I think the, the Coleman Christian says something like, um, conduct yourselves as worthy citizens, is the way that I think it's translated. Because here's the idea. If you belong to a certain group of people, and there is a commonwealth that you share in, there's an expectation for how you conduct yourself, how you act. And that's especially true when you're a citizen of heaven. And that's why, by the way, when Paul says over there in chapter 3, you need to see me as an example 
of somebody who understands how to conduct themselves as a citizen of heaven. It's going to affect the way we look at pain and how we value certain things and how we're going to have anxiety in this life and how we're going to treat people because of our citizenship. It's that simple. So let's explore that a little bit. Go with me in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4. This is a section where I believe Paul um, will write about how his understanding of where his home was, heaven, that it affected the way he looked at pain and difficulty in life. Chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, starting around verse... Let's just read 16 through 18 for time's sake. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, one thing I want you to connect to what we read over there in Philippians 3 is in Philippians 3 when he said, we're citizens of heaven and what we're doing is we're waiting eagerly for the Savior to come and transform our lowly bodies or the bodies of our humble state, your version said, into bodies that are going to be conformed to the glory of his body. Both that text and this text talk about something concerning our external bodies. Now, what does it say here in verse 16? We don't lose hearts as these external bodies begin to decay because our inner person is being renewed. Knowing that what's ahead of us is not in, and did you, have you ever noticed, I'm sure you've noticed the uh, contrast in verses 17 through 19 momentary versus eternal, light versus weighty, uh, affliction versus glory. Because we're citizens of heaven and we know that we're going home, everything about what's happening inside of us is producing an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs the temporary light afflictions of life. All right, I'm getting older. I am 46 years old now. I have two boys that are uh, in college and I remember when I was writing this sermon originally uh, for something different, and that's a different version of it, uh, my son was a teenager at the time. And that week he had said to me, hey, Dad, when you're, like, playing volleyball and, like, you know, playing sports and you go to swing, like, up above your head, does your arm ever, like, pop and kind of hurt? And I said, I don't remember when it didn't do that. Like, that's how it always is for me now. But here's what's going to happen to all of you young people. Uh, all of the energy you have, all of the coordination you have, all the things you think you're good at are going to start evaporating like very quickly. And let me be really clear about this. If that's what your life is about, it's going to break your heart. You will struggle. You will. Your inner man will decay if that's what life is about for you. Because what you're going to be trying to hold on to is this home 
that's not going to last for very long. But let me go back to what I was saying. You know these people, don't you? Uh, it's been a while since we've been able to just go visit people in old folks' homes. I'm not sure what it's like here, but you can't just go into like places where there are older folks in their place, in their rest areas or their whatever you call those. Uh, old folks' home is not PC, but we're not being PC here. Uh, we're on a driveway in somebody's yard. Um, have you ever gone to visit folks in an old folks home? Those places are really hard for me. You've got people there that don't have anyone. Like, they don't have people come visit. Um, they watch you as you walk down the hallway wondering if you're going to look at them and say hi to them. Um, you ever notice this, though, if you go visit some of those people? They are either so pleasant to be around or absolutely miserable to be around. Like, I just believe this. When you get old, you're either going to be better or you're going to be bitter. There's, like, no in-between. I've never met, like, an old person that I was kind of like, meh. I either really loved them or I couldn't stand them. And I'm just being honest with you. And there's a, there's a reason for that. The reason is because some people understand they're getting old and their body's wearing out isn't where their joy is from. There was an older lady in L.A. when I preached there. And all she ever did was complain about how nobody came to visit her. Do you know who she complained to? The people who came to visit her. Now think about that. She would complain to the people who came to visit her that nobody came to visit her. And we'd all kind of look at her and be like, right here. She was so angry all the time. So people stopped visiting her. And finally one day, she was my friend, I said to her, hey, you know why nobody comes to visit you anymore? Because when they come to visit you, all you say is nobody comes to visit me. You're miserable. And she was grateful for that conversation. Because she began to realize that there were blessings around her. That she wasn't counting. And I just want to make this as simple as I can. The first thing we need to realize about that heaven is our home and we're citizens of that place is that it should change from this day forward, no matter how old you are, your relationship with pain in this life. And I want you to remember this text. Turn with me now to Matthew 6. Matthew 6. Understanding that we are citizens of heaven and that we're going home to that place it changes what we value. And I know that sounds simple, but let's think about it together for a minute. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just going to talk a little bit about that for a minute. When Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, uh, if we were to just take that literally, <clears throat> would any of us uh, not be guilty? Um, I've lived in my home in Minnesota for about 15 years now. When we moved there from Los Angeles, we threw, like, everything away, almost everything away in L.A., and we were going to start over because I was tired of having all that stuff. I've been there 15 years, and I've got no room left to put anything. 
And I don't even know what some of it is. Like, it's underneath stuff that I, like, don't use, and I don't even know. Um, I have all this stuff stored up. Am I guilty of storing up treasures on earth? I guess it depends. It depends on how I value it. Because i got to be honest. If while I'm here, now, let me be really clear about this, and my family's not at home, if my house burns down, I'm going to be just fine with that. Like, I really am. Um, If all of that stuff was to go away, it wouldn't trouble me much. Chris, are you cool with that? You need to roll that, like, propeller thing out first, but... Um, but I think all of us understand this that as we live in our lives we have things that we value and things that we care about and Jesus is saying that we need to come to a place of understanding that where our real treasures are are the treasures in heaven that we lay out Um, by the way this is an interesting text to me because I've always thought Jesus was simply talking about material goods because he says where moth and rust destroy, and thieves break in and steal. I'm not really doing a sermon on what heaven's going to be like so much this week. Some of the other guys might. Um, But I do like this verse for this reason. Those are three things that aren't going to be in heaven. No moths, no rust, and no thieves. Um, People are going to be good there. And so things that get stolen won't get stolen. But what Jesus just got through talking about in the first 18 verses was actually reputation more than anything. If you look close at verses 1 through 18, he was saying, there's a temptation in this world to want people to like you. And so you do your deeds or you do your fasting or you do your praying in a way that make make other people look at you and give you accolades. Because you know that's as earthly a treasure as there is. And if that's what you value and hold on to, Jesus says you have your reward. But someday in heaven, people aren't going to be impressed when you walk by. Did you know that? All eyes are going to be on the throne. And we're going to be surrounded with people who haven't cared at all about their egos, who have understood that their treasures are up there, and that now that we're home, Not any one of us is any better than anybody else. And so, understanding that helps us value things the right way. That's all I'll say about that. Let's keep reading, though, to talk about how it affects anxiety. Let's get down to about verse 24. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, as I was growing up, I used to read this verse wrong. I would read this verse this way. You should not serve God and wealth. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said you cannot. Not you should not. You cannot. It doesn't say in the verse you shouldn't have two masters. It says you cannot have two masters. Look, if you're trying to serve this one, you've turned your back on this one. If you're trying to serve this one, you've turned your back on this one. So Jesus just comes right out and says, you cannot say that you serve and honor and worship God if you're an idolater. That's really what this verse is, is idolatry. How many of us are idolaters? What do you think? 
And we understand that not many of us are bowing to like physical images. We know that the New Testament talks about covetousness as being a form of idolatry. But I don't think you have to go away from this passage to know if idolatry is a problem for you. Look at the next verse. Matthew uh, 6.25 says, For this reason, well, what reason was that? The reason that no one can serve two masters. Jesus just got through saying, you can't really be an idolatry. Like, you either serve God or you don't. Then he says, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, or for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then Jesus has this great section on anxiety where he keeps saying, stop it. Stop being anxious. Stop worrying. There's all kinds of good reasons not to worry. Just take a walk in the woods and look at the birds and just be aware of how God takes care of them. But here is the test for idolatry. You know what it is? Anxiety. And it took me a while to figure this out. What's your relationship with anxiety? What's it like? How anxious and worried are you as a person? Maybe I shouldn't ask you. What if I asked your children? Or your spouse? Or your best friends? How does this person do with worry? This is a really challenging passage for me. And the reason it's challenging for me is that I do spend some of my time anxious and worried about some things. Whenever I do that, it's like Jesus says, it's because I am of little faith and I've forgotten really where my citizenship is. That I must seek first, what? The kingdom of heaven. The citizenship of the place that I'm, I belong to currently and I'm headed. Uh, but here's why this is also challenging. I want you to go back in your mind to that plane full of Afghanistan refugees. Alright? I want you to imagine that they get off the plane. I suppose they're already off the plane. I'm not sure where they all went. But let's say that we got them all together like this, sitting down to listen to us. And I quoted Jesus to them. And I said, hey, listen. Don't be worried about your life. What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to put on. Don't be worried about that. Stop it, you of little faith. Cut it out. Would you be like, whoa, ease up, Andy. Come on. Like, they got nothing. Did you know that's who Jesus was talking to in the first place? Really? Like, we imagine that Jesus was preaching to crowds full of rich people. He wasn't. He was normally preaching to crowds of people who had nothing. And here's what he said to people who had nothing. Do not worry about your life. And if we as rich Americans can't see that our anxieties about our retirement, our neighborhoods, our property values, Whatever else you want to add to the thing. If, if we're worried about stuff like that, we're missing the point by a mile. Being a citizen of heaven changes our relationship with pain, with what we value, with anxiety, and finally people. Go to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Verse 35. 
of Matthew 9 says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people or the crowds or the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. All right, notice verse 35. You see where it says Jesus was going around all the cities, all the villages, all the synagogues? You see that? Do you think that was typical for a rabbi? Have you thought about that? Do you think that most of the rabbis of Jesus' time were going to all cities, all villages? Or do you think they were choosing? In fact, I think most of the most famous rabbis probably stayed put where they were. Uh, some of them might have gone on tour, but they wouldn't have gone to every village. In fact, I want to remind you that Jesus had disciples, young guys with him, that when he went to some of those villages, they wanted to call down fire and burn those villages up. That's the kind of places Jesus was going. But Jesus had a different way of looking at the world and people in the world than I do. And it's verse... 37, when he, or sorry, verse 36, seeing the multitudes. I want to do an exercise with you. When was the last time you were in a multitude of people? It's been a while, probably for a lot of us. Last time you went to a theme park or a concert or a a fair or a a ball game at a stadium. Remember last time you were in a big group like that? How do you feel when you're in big groups of people? Uh, with the masses of humanity. Let me be honest. I normally get annoyed. Like, I take my kids someplace, somebody's immodest, somebody's starting to fight, somebody's getting drunk, somebody's using foul language, and I gotta, like, tell them there's little ears around, and then they cuss more. You ever, you ever been in those situations where there's people around who are deeply troubled, doing all kinds of ungodly things, And here's how this verse would read if I was the center of this verse. Verse 36 would say, Seeing the multitudes, Andy felt compassion for himself. Because he was distressed. And he was dispirited. Now I'm going to be really honest with y'all. We've got this so backwards, guys. This is how most of us talk. Most of us in the world that we live in that is deeply troubled, we're the ones who feel troubled. We're the ones who feel sorry for ourselves. We have compassion on us because this world's not our home. And Jesus, because he knew heaven was a real place and people could go there, he had compassion not on himself but on them. In fact, I like these words in this verse where it talks about them being distressed. You might have a a footnote in your Bible that says that word could be translated harassed. Distressed and dispirited, harassed and thrown down. Well, who was harassing them? Listen, every person that you've ever been annoyed with in this life is harassed by the great deceiver. Even the President of the United States. As much as you don't like him, or the last one, you shouldn't have compassion on yourself for having to live in such a place as this. 
We should have compassion for somebody who's lost, who doesn't understand that there's something better than this place and this home. And what I really like about what happens here is Jesus says in verse 37 something that must have sounded as backwards to his disciples as it would to us. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. This is another one we get exactly upside down. Most people I hear talk about evangelism, talk like this. There's nobody out there that wants to hear it anymore. Look at all of us. We've got all these workers. But the harvest is few. That's never been true. It's never been true. What's real, always, is that the harvest is plentiful, but there's not enough of us who know where we're going and know who we belong to and are excited about that place to send, to go out into the harvest. I want to end with this. My father is one of the greatest evangelists I know. He's never made a dime preaching. He's not a preacher. He was a gas serviceman in San Diego. But when he would dig ditches, he would tell people about Jesus. When he would... Uh, right around in the trucks, he was talking about his faith. And he converted more people than any preacher I've ever known. Uh, he's an evangelist. But preachers who stood up in pulpits always caused trouble where I grew up. And so my dad had kind of like this bad taste in his mouth for preachers. But he used to pray this almost every prayer. I remember in public prayer, he would say, Lord... Send forth reapers. Lord, send forth reapers. Just like Jesus told us to pray. And then one day, his son became a preacher. And I had to tell my dad, I was going to make my living with the gospel. I was scared to death. And I should have been. Because when I told him, he didn't react well. I said, Dad, guess what? I'm moving from San Diego to Arkansas to be a preacher. And he put his head down, and he said, well, don't let your ego get involved. And that was the last word he said to me for two years about it. Never told me he was proud. Never listened to a lesson. Because to my dad, what mattered wasn't what was going to happen with me. What mattered was whether or not the words and the things that I said to the people around me were going to help them. My dad has finally told me that he's proud of me. But not because I do stuff like this. Not because of standing in pulpits. But because my dad knows